Hi, I'm Keith McCullough. Welcome back to Real Conversations, where it's my pleasure and privilege to have one of the great authors, at least one of the great modern authors who's around in Jim Rickards. He wrote The Currency Wars and now has his new bestseller out, The Death of Money, which I'm really excited to get into uh, with you today, Jim. So thank you for, for making the time. It's good to be here, Keith. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting traverse that you take us through these books mm-hmm. because it's very different, I think, you know, particularly those of us who are educated on the East Coast, anywhere actually in, in, in the West in, in general with all this kind of Keynesian academic linear gobbledygook. You've really provided kind of a basis uh, with Currency Wars first and now this next book. Um, can, you, can you give kind of just a basic overview of your framework, how you think about, how you think about history and money, um, just, just to get things started? Sure. I'm glad you framed the question that way, Keith, because I, uh, when I was an undergraduate taking economics, uh, I went to Johns Hopkins and had an excellent economics department. Um, and I really, and I was taught, you know, classic Keynesian theory, and, and I really didn't, I struggled with it. I said, this doesn't make sense to me. And I said, you know, <laughs> I, I must not be a very good student. And decades later, I realized it was all junk. So it was, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, now I know why I didn't get it, because it didn't make sense then. And do you think it's important that you study it before you know how junky it is? Sure. Like, it's like, you know, uh, you know think, people think of Picasso as a great abstract artist, but you have to be classically trained to do the abstraction. So I'm glad I went through the pain of having to study um, the pseudoscience of Keynesianism, so that I think it helps me be a better critic today. But uh, it's, it's, uh, I like to say that the... Uh, you know, the MIT Chicago crowd, all the 160 IQs running central banks, they're not, they're not uneducated, but they're miseducated. They've been, they're smart people who have been taught something that isn't true. So that will lead to no end of confusion. Yeah, to be clear, I think policy. a lot of people think, um, a lot of people accuse me of calling these people stupid. I, I don't think they're stupid at all. No, I, I, There's a I, difference I, between stupidity and the ideological correct. kind of... Correct. I mean, I know a lot of them. Uh, you know, there was long-term capital management. We had 16 finance PhDs on our management committee. We were... We used to get calls from deans of the major business schools saying, you're depriving academia of the future generation of scholars because you're hiring them all, which we did. We, if you were, we'd call you know, Bob Merritt at Harvard or whatever and say, who's your smartest PhD candidate this year? And he'd give us a name. We'd hire that guy. So, so I was immer- marinated, if you will, in this. So I understand it very well. I know the people. They are actually brilliant, but they're just very wrong about their methodology. It's really the method. And you know, the way I like to describe it, if, you know, if I hold a pen in my hand, and I say, okay, Keith, I'm going to let go of the pen, and I want you to give me your forecast as to what's going to happen next. You'll think for about a split second. You say, Jim, it's going to hit the floor. And I let go, and sure enough, it hits the floor. But the Fed has a model that says it's going to float to the ceiling. And, <laughs> it, and so you don't, you don't have a crystal ball. You don't have to be smarter than Larry Summers. I'm certainly not. But you have the right model. You know that the pen has weight. We're on the planet Earth. You understand gravity, and you put all these things together and say it's going to hit the floor. So if you have the right model, you'll get the right result. If you have the wrong model, which the Fed does, you will always get the wrong result. It doesn't matter how smart you are. So that's how I think about it and how I approach it and what I talk about in both of my books. I mean, it sort of raises the question, well, what is the correct model? And that took me 10 years of research to arrive at. But it's, it's, it's clear empirically, not just intuitively, but empirically, that complexity theory is the right model. So we're in the middle of a classic paradigm shift, uh, the kind talking about, uh, spoken about by... Uh, uh, Thomas Kuhn and his uh, History of Scientific Revolutions. But the problem with paradigm shifts, they can take 100 years. Yeah. They can take, you know, I mean, ideas that are prevalent in portfolio management and risk management today percolated out of the universities in the 1950s, 1960s, a little bit in the early 70s. So it took those ideas 20 or 30 years to come to the fore. 
the new ideas are out there. They are being studied certain places. But it could take, unfortunately, another 20 years or so to come to the fore. Well, it's, it's interesting because most people that follow me or you on Twitter, they'll always ask us the same questions. Is how do, how do I, what book do I get or how do I learn about this? How do I apply chaos theory or complexity theory or nonlinear math to markets? Right. And the answer is there's no book. Right. I mean, uh, now you have a couple books, but you actually don't have a trading manual or anything like that that, that would really kind of be in line with wh- what I see on the buy side, which is an, an, an implicit application of these fundamental mathematical principles that have become pretty much accepted in science. Well, if you bought uh, either one of my books uh, and you said, gee, I could have the whole book without the sources or I could just take the sources, you might want to just take the sources. Exactly. Because yeah. Because I, I lay it all out there. One of the things I do... Um, yeah, your the, first book, by the way, I bought every single book in your sources. Well, uh, that's quite a lot. Some of them are like, a, you know, it's like watching, it's like reading, you know, watching paint dry and reading something. You have to smoke steady cigars or something to stay, you know, stay awake reading right. stuff. But you really do need to reteach yourself if you're indoctrinated in Keynesian economics. I, I think that's exactly right. My sort of re-education, if you will, uh, came in the wake of long-term capital management because I was... Uh, very involved there. I yep. negotiated the bail. I, I was not the risk manager, but I was the general counsel. So I, I like to say in America, when you mess up badly enough, the lawyers take over. <laughs> so I actually got to take over in the course of the bailout. Yep. And I came away from that. Uh, look, it was uh, uh, you know disaster from a risk management point of view. But I, I said, we, you know, we lost money the old-fashioned way with honesty and hard work. Uh, everyone got back on their feet and started new hedge funds and all that. But I came away from it as a lawyer saying, okay, I did my job as a lawyer. But the Nobel Prize winners didn't do their jobs as risk managers. Something's wrong. And they were, they were good people. They're mm-hmm. friends of mine. So, so I set out on a kind of intellectual odyssey. I said, well, first of all, what's wrong with the way we think about risk and portfolio management? So that took about five years. I studied uh, you know, applied mathematics, uh, physics, complexity theory, graph theory, network theory, behavioral economics. I studied a lot of fields. It took me about five years to figure out what was wrong. Then I kind of got to where you know Nassim Taleb was in the Black Swan, you know, just beating the bell curve with a baseball bat and demolishing it. But then at that point, Taleb kind of threw up his hands and said, "Well, this doesn't work, and so good luck." You know, yeah. I'm going to just. Well, he got a little angry too. You're you're not angry. No. Well, what's the point of being angry? You know, it's not not very <laughs> constructive. And you know, Taleb just said, you know, uh, all this stuff doesn't work, so just go long volatility. That was kind of yeah. his solution. I want to take which it being long volatility for the last five years is probably the worst call you could have made. Correct. The, yeah. That can be a very expensive and a very uh, and you can go broke being right uh, mm-hmm. as as we both know. Uh, so then I said I spent five more years saying, well, this doesn't work. What does work? And uh, and what I've really done certainly didn't invent complexity theory. Complexity theory goes back to the early '60s, but I'm one of the pioneers in applying complexity theory to capital markets. So mm-hmm. I would say that's my contribution. That's what I talk about in my books. Yeah, and I think you're dead on with that. I mean, we've had, and we've had multiple conference calls with institutional uh, clients, very sophisticated institutional clients, and what I would call sophisticated today are actually the people that are willing to change. Mm -hmm. Particularly bottoms up, really sophisticated bottoms up, uh, hedge fund managers, mutual fund managers, whatever it may be, they said, wow, I didn't use macro for a reason, but this macro I can use. Well, and, and that's kind of where we're at. They're constantly, in it and you get a ton of compliments you know, within the practitioner community. So it's interesting to see you get this kind of recognition on a top, like on a bestseller list, for example. Yeah, thank, thank you. And by the way, that's been, to me, one of the big developments in markets in the last five years is that you know, markets, were always, there, were, there have always been global macro strategists, top-down people. There have always been technicians. But a lot of people were kind of bottom-up fundamental analysts. You know, yep. They went to Columbia Business School, learned securities analysis. That's extremely valuable. But... Recently, the fundamental guys have been getting whipped around by the macro, the macro environment. You know, I, I've spoken to hedge fund managers 
who said, you know, I know how to analyze stocks, I know how to pick you know, bio stocks or tech stocks, but I don't know how to read Angela Merkel's mind. Uh, you know, she gets out of the wrong side of bed, she wants to pick a fight with the Greek finance minister, the market goes down, <laughs> and she want, they want to kiss and make up, the market goes up. And so what does that have to do with fundamental security analysis? Well, at one level, nothing, but at a much more important level, if you can understand those critical state system dynamics and kind of actually read Angela Merkel's mind, that's extremely valuable. So yep. you really have to combine the two. And what you're really saying there is if you understand the context of the moment or if you understand the grains of sand falling onto the pile and you're looking right. for that nonlinear moment, there actually is some pretty causal factors that are the grains. In fact, if you're studying it and staying current with who these big central planners are, correct? Correct. And you know, the, the, the sand pile experiments are really one of the original kind of earth sources and complexity yeah. theory. And, uh, uh, Even the poli-sci majors get this. I love this one. So well, you can watch going. the sand pile collapse and say, well, why did it collapse? Why did it collapse then and not five minutes ago? Or why the next time I replicate the experiment, it'll be two days before it collapses? What's up with that? Well, that's what complexity theory really teaches us. And Perbach, how nature works, is a, a classic source on that. You know, I use the, uh, maybe because I'm a mountain climber, I use the, the snowflake and the avalanche. But it's the same thing as the grain of sand in the sand pile. And, and I make the point... You know, the snow builds up, it builds up. If you're an expert, you can watch it and say, okay, this is very unstable, it's windswept, it's going to come down, it's going to kill some skiers, bury a village, etc. Um, and so a little snowflake comes along and it disturbs a few other snowflakes, starts to slide, starts to shoot, gains momentum, the whole thing comes loose and, and you bury the village. Who do you blame? The snowflake or the unstable snowpack? And I say, look, if it wasn't one snowflake, it would have been another. It's not really the snowflake, it's the instability. So when I look at the collapse of the international monetary system, to me, the blunders have already been made. The snow has already piled up. Mm-hmm. We're just waiting for the snowflake. You know, one of the you know, uh, comments I get or questions I get is, is almost to the effect of, hey, Jim, call me at 3.30 the day before it collapses, yeah, exactly. and I'll sell my stocks and buy some gold. Yeah, I'll get right back to you yeah, on that. It, it doesn't work that way. But right. some macro guys actually intuitively get that that's the point. Mm-hmm. You know, Stan Druckenmiller has all but said, look, you know, the rules are kind of changing out there. I right. can't actually get... George can't call the Bank of England and the Bank of England guy tell me. So now it's, it's changing. It's changing a little bit faster because of the nonlinearity of all these decisions Correct. and how they're made. Um, when you look at the death of money or relative to the currency war book, mm-hmm. is, it, is it a cumulative experience in terms of explaining what that book means relative to the prior? Or do they matter to each other? Uh, do they matter relative to the kind of global excesses that have been building, build, building up in this big snow pile? Yeah, th- they do matter. And uh, the way I describe it, it's, it's kind of like uh, the death of money is like the Godfather Part Two. It's a, pre- <laughs> it's a prequel and a sequel. So, for example, one of the most popular parts of Currency Wars was Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, where I describe a financial war game that I facilitated for the Pentagon in 2009. And, you know, people find that fascinating. It is pretty interesting. But... Uh, people say, well, Jim, how come, what were you doing there? Yeah. You're a Wall Street guy. How did you get invited yeah. by the Pentagon to be there? So You're it, not going to get invited again, by the way. Uh, well, uh, you know, it's funny. That's, <laughs> that's the most frequent comment I get when I'm on television. People say, it, it, they will never invite you back. Some So far, so good. No, because in that book, you basically said, and this was the most riveting part of the book, you, you work people into it, and then all of a sudden, when you made the most rational decision that you should have made, they said, no, you can't make that decision. That's right. We were called, uh, we made a move involving Russia, China, and gold, and yep. there's, in a war game, is what they call the white cell, and they're the referees. So they yeah. score. They say, okay, you, you got some PowerPoints. You guys lost some PowerPoints. Exactly. When we made our gold move with Russia and China, they said, that's an illegal move. And we jumped out of our seats and said, what do you mean? This is a war. What do you mean illegal move? <laughs> and we pushed back and pushed back. And finally they said, in effect, okay, it's legal, but it's stupid. That yeah. was more or less what they said. And by the way, since then, since 2009, 
Russia has increased its gold reserves 70%. Wow. China has increased its gold reserves several hundred percent. Mm -hmm. No one knows the exact number, but you can estimate uh, that order of magnitude. So everything we did in 2009 has played out exactly the way we warned the Pentagon it was going to play mm -hmm. out. So you kind of have the last laugh on that one. So, but in, in the death of money, I actually take my involvement with national security and financial threats to national security back to 2003. So I tell the pre-story, if you read that really in chapter one, it kind of explains what I was doing in the weapons laboratory in 2009. So that's the prequel. The sequel is to take the story forward because at the end of Currency Wars, I kind of had one chapter and I sketched a few possible outcomes, but honestly I did it in five or six pages just to put some stakes yep. in the ground. In the new book, I, have a, I expand each of those to chapter length. So I have a whole chapter just on the IMF, a whole chapter just on gold, a whole chapter just on sort of financial collapse, and then kind of wrap it up. I mean, again. understanding, this is like hardcore chaos theory. If you don't understand what all the components are, you can't even begin to understand where you're going to be. I, I would drop one footnote there, Keith. It's not exactly chaos theory, and that is a popular way to describe it. Complexity theory and chaos theory are cousins. Mm -hmm. But they're really two different branches of science. So, and that's important because in the um, 90s, there was sort of a pop craze in applying chaos theory to capital markets. Mm -hmm. And it didn't go very far. One of the reasons is, first of all, a lot of the, you know, it's funny, the people who really understand chaos and complexity, and they are related, are physicists. And they're kind of coming at capital markets with, don't necessarily understand capital markets. They tend to gravitate to the stock market, mm -hmm. which is important, but I think there are more interesting things going on in fixed income and derivatives mm -hmm. when it comes to how this all works. Well, typically what you'll have is people you know, that, that use chaos theory instead of complexity theory very often, they'll use that kind of thermodynamic model where right. they're looking for the point of entropy. And, and they'd say, you know, look, if you just look at a body of water, you can't tell the velocity of the water from top down. Right. You've got to understand the componentry of the water so that once we hit that point of entropy, you know, it's no longer a, a complete surprise to you. Right. And, and I often hear that people use that, you know, at least people that are starting to get it. This is very, very hard to get, by right. the way. I mean, en entropy is important, but entropy, first of all, is kind of slow and very long term. Yep. I'm, I'm interested in what I call collapse, which mm -hmm. can be very sudden. And that, that's, that's really what you have to watch out which for. Which is what I want to know, like, at what time of the day are we going to... Right, exactly. <laughs> but if you look exactly, at, like, right. I mean, some of the comments on the death of money, you know, John Mackin at Caxton... He's, he said, look, you do a great job um, basically depicting these massive accumulations and stress, stresses that, that we currently have. Mm -hmm. Many people would say, no, this is low vol. This, there's no problem. There's, you know, we've actually deleveraged the system. Uh, well, we haven't deleveraged the system. It, the, first of all, what do you think about in complexity theory is what's called scale. And scale is just a fancy word for size. And it's how big is the system. And the simplest way to describe it, so you know, in 2008, all we heard about was too big to fail. Well, as you know, Keith, since 2008, the five biggest banks in the United States are bigger. They have a large, <laughs> yes, they have a larger percentage of the total banking uh, assets in the banking system. So that's just bigger. They have a bigger share. And the derivatives books are much bigger. So everything that was wrong in 2008 is worse today. Now, how does that play out in risk space? Um, so if I say, okay, I tripled my derivatives book, and I go to Jamie Dimon and say, how much did the risk increase? He, he really knows nothing about risk. He's kind of a type A process engineer, but he clearly doesn't know anything <laughs> about risk. So Jamie Dimon would say, a well... A type A process engineer? Yeah, he's good at mergers, and he's got a playbook, and I give, he, he, he would be better off running like General Electric or something, not a bank. But, uh, but the point is, Jamie Dimon would say, okay, you tripled the derivatives book, but the risk didn't go up at all or barely at all, because right. it's, it's long, short, long, short, long, short, it all offsets, we net it down the actual, quote, value at risk, which is junk science, but the value at risk is quite small. So you go to my 83-year-old mother, who's very smart, but she's not an economist, and say, Mom, I tripled the system. How much did the risk go up? She would probably use intuition and say the risk tripled. 
Well, Jamie Dimon's wrong. My mother's wrong. The actual answer is that it's an exponential function. Mm -hmm. So if I triple the scale, risk has gone up by a factor of 10 or maybe 100. The exponent is, is no, uh, no. Yeah. theoretical, but we have to do the empirics. It'll take 10, 20 years to do the empirics. But there's enough good theory to know that that's what happened. Well, if that's not the model you're using, then you don't know how much risk there is. And, and that, that is the right model. Again, there's lots to support that. So Wall Street thinks risk didn't go up. Kind of everyday citizen intuitively thinks it went up a little bit, but the science actually says it went up exponentially. And that's why when I say the next collapse will be the greatest one in history, it's simply because the scale is so much bigger, and if risk is an exponential function of scale, you can see this coming. Hmm. Now, if you're looking for that thing, mm -hmm. what are you looking for? Well, it, it's, it's, a good, it's a really good question, and uh, I, the correct answer, the technically correct answer is that it doesn't matter. It's, it's one snowflake versus another. But let me give you some examples. It could be a failure to deliver physical gold somewhere in the system mm -hmm. because we all know gold is a, an inverted pyramid with a lot of paper, uh, you know, LBMA, you know, London uh, Bullion Market Association, forwards, unallocated gold, COMEX futures, uh, you know, with GLD, et cetera, with a lot of paper gold on top and a very, very narrow base of physical gold. Now, what's happening lately is fascinating. At my last trip to Switzerland, I did not visit any banks. I went to see refiners and secure logistics firms. So I went to see the people handling the physical gold. And what, what they told me was, 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 as I say, fascinating. First of all, gold is coming out of banks, going into private storage. Mm -hmm. So it's coming out of UBS, Credit Suisse, and Deutsche Bank, going to places like G4S, VMAT, Brinks. They're the big secure logistics providers. Now, a typical analyst would say, well, if you move gold from one vault to another vault, there's no change in the stock of gold, which is correct. But there is a reduction in the floating supply. Exactly. Because in the bank, that gold can be leveraged, whereas when it goes to VMAT, they don't do leasing. Mm -hmm. They don't do leverage. It's just, it just sits there. Mm -hmm. So the total stock is unchanged, but the floating supply is diminishing. Yep. So your inverted pyramid is resting on a smaller and smaller piece of That's physical gold. So that could lead to a failure to deliver, which could trigger panic buying, uh, you know, a set around the world. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to some, um, you know, kind of Wall top Wall Street commodities traders who actually see, and I agree with them, um, uh, kind of panic buying in China. When this mm -hmm. credit collapse, that's a separate collapse, but when that unfolds, and it's unfolding now that people just run to gold. So that, that's kind of one dynamic. But the refiners, uh, talked to one of the biggest refiners in Switzerland. He's recently expanded his uh, re refinery, state-of-the-art equipment. It's not like guys with tongs, you know, pouring things. It's very, very <laughs> high-tech these days. They're working triple shifts. They're working 24 hours a day to fulfill demand. Uh -huh. He said the Chinese are taking... He's producing ten, uh, sorry, 20 tons a week. The Chinese are taking 10 tons a week. So that's 500 tons from one refinery per year. Uh, I said the Chinese want more, but I won't sell it to them because I've got to take care of Rolex and my old uh, yeah, customers. Exactly. Um, and we're sold a year in advance. Mm -hmm. he, said, he said, I've actually had trouble sourcing gold. And I was, that what they, they take in you know, old 400-ounce bars, what they call scrap, which is jewelry watches, mm -hmm. and then Dore, which is the 90% ingots from the miners. They take that in. They refine it now into kind of nine 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 percent pure one kilo bars. Um, and I said, well, that's interesting. He's not having trouble getting the gold to refine. I said, when was the last time that happened? He said, it's never happened. Never. And he's been in the business since 78. It's the yeah. first time he's seen. So this is what's going on in the physical world. So back to your question. It could be a failure to deliver gold, which is entirely likely. It could be uh, kind of another MF Global, a, a Lehman type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, it could be a prominent suicide. It could be a natural disaster you know, a la Fukushima. Fukushima was fascinating because what you had was an earthquake, which is one example of complexity, you know, uh, complex systems breaking down, which led to a tsunami, mm -hmm. which is another complex system, which hit a nuclear power plant, which is another complex system, 
which took down the Tokyo Stock Exchange, which is another complex system. Mm -hmm. So you had spillover from earthquake to tidal wave to nuclear reactor to stock market. It's all the same. Exactly. All this math is the same. So, so the real answer is we don't know what it is. I mean, it, we, but we know what characteristically um, kind of the, the values of what, of what that thing would be. Right. But to say that you or I know what the hell this is going to be is just, you know, it, we, we could say, look, uh, liquidity. Basically, yeah. your failure to deliver common, I could say, well, how does, well, maybe I just ask you, why doesn't that apply to the U.S. stock market when the market is going straight up on no volume? Well, it, it'll, um, it'll play out in liquidity space. So, so you're exactly right. We don't know the catalyst. My point is it doesn't matter. We know the risk in the system. That, exactly. That's there, and we can yep. measure that. Okay? We don't know the catalyst. It doesn't matter because it'll come. It's certain of that. Now, then it plays out in liquidity space. Um, I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, and this kind of answers your question on the U.S. stock market. I was in Tokyo in September 2007 when the housing collapse was beginning. Remember, our panic was 08, but the collapse actually began in 07, and the Tokyo stock market was going down very sharply. And my friend said, wait a second, Jim, we don't understand. We understand you Americans have a mortgage problem, but we don't understand why Tokyo stocks are going down. And I said, well, the reason is that when you're in distress, you don't sell what you want, you sell what you can. can, So U.S. hedge funds were selling Japanese stocks because they were actually good assets to get cash to meet margin calls on mortgages that they couldn't sell, or at least not at the price they like. So that's an example of what the IMF calls spillover effects, or you know, I, I was, would describe it as the density function, which is you know, things are so densely connected mm-hmm. that a perturbation in one part of the system quickly ripples through. So it'll take down stocks. Uh, you, know, you might see um, some rallying bonds, usual flight to quality, et cetera. Gold is an obvious place to be, um, but, uh, and, and cash, of course. So um, it'll happen very quickly. Uh, you won't have time to adjust. And one of the things I, I say about gold is... Um, the time to get your gold is now. I understand the volatility. I understand the price action since the peak in August 2011. I mean, I get all that. But you want to acquire the gold now. So when I see a drop, you know, $20, $30, I say, well, that's a gift. You know, it's a better entry point. Um, don't use leverage. Gold is volatile enough. So you certainly don't want to put leverage on a volatile asset class. But when you really want your gold, you're not going to be able to get it. Because the big guys will get it. Right? Central banks will have it. The IMF has some gold, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar hedge funds will be able to get some gold. Sovereign wealth funds will get mm-hmm. gold. But the men will stop shipping it. Your local dealer will run out. There will be a price on a tape somewhere, but you will not be able to get it at any price because mm-hmm. anyone below the sovereign wealth fund level it won't be available. You know, this happened in the you know, mid-19th century in the U.S. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, people just couldn't find it. Right. Where was it? And that's why they introduced greenbacks. You know, yeah. you, know, you go through kind of the history. And that's actually my biggest fear is that in reaction to illiquidity mm-hmm. or a failure to deliver, mm-hmm. the Fed gets easier and easier and easier because that's all they know. Correct. That is all they know. And they get easier and easier right up to the, what's called the phase transition. I okay. think the popular term is a tipping point yeah. where confidence in, in the dollar is lost very quickly. Actually, yeah. Yeah, you make an interesting point about gold in the 19th century, Keith. In, in my book, The Death of Money, I go back to the 9th century and I say Charlemagne was the father of quantitative easing because the, the Western Roman Empire that he was reconstituting was on a gold standard based on the Byzantine coin that Soli does. And there was actually a gold shortage. So Charlemagne switched the money supply from gold to silver because silver was more plentiful. So that was a kind of quantitative easing. It's, it's, it's amazing. Like, um, would, uh, and, and then they, they mine and they mine and they mine, whether it's, it's in the 10th or the 9th century or the 19th century. I mean, today, actually, I don't know if you saw this, but Cerro Rico is basically starting to cave in. Mm-hmm. Because when you can't find it, right. you just mine the whole damn thing and it's gone. 
That's right. And we're kind of at this point where a lot of things like that, like I found that to be one of the most odd things I read this morning, but it made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. They've been mining the crap out of that thing in Bolivia since what? You know, the 1800s, the early part Correct. of the 1800s. And another very good example is China. You know, China is the world's largest gold producer today. They produce right. about 450 tons a year, which is a lot of gold. And that's, that's fairly recent. You know, South Africa had been number one for almost 100 years. China, it was like a horse race. They came from back in the pack to, you know, kind of lead at the finish line. But here's the problem. <laughs> China is doing this on a completely non-sustainable basis. Those mines are going to be stripped in another year or two. They're, um, you know, use cyanide to separate gold from ore. Uh, they're leaching the cyanide into the rivers, poisoning the water supply. You know, if a Canadian or U.S. firm wants to mine gold, they have to cache the cyanide and, like, account for it after yeah. the fact. So there's no cyanide missing, <laughs> which is a good thing. I'm all for that. But the Chinese don't bother. They dump it into their rivers. So, yeah, 450 <laughs> tons a year right now. Can you tell the- us what you really think? <laughs> Well, I have a lot of good friends in China, and I, yeah. I admire. But this ch- is the this is the, the you know the fact of the matter is that this is the way that the real world works. Correct. And we have you see these unelected central planners who a operate on a linear basis. They don't accept dynamism or nonlinear. You Correct. Start. Right. And and here we are. We're at this moment where we're getting some like you know I'd say early adopters of this type of thought, like David Einhorn. I don't yeah. know if you, you you saw this headline the other day. He has he has access to Bernanke now. Bernanke is getting paid what two hundred grand to have dinner with whatever people at this is point. It, yeah. There's no inflation, but by he's the way, he's getting a big advance on his book, which as an author I can only. And there'll be no so. inflation associated right. with any of these fees that he's going to get. But right. the reality is that a guy like that, the headline comes out that what he heard out of Ben Bernanke as a direct response to his questions was quote unquote frightening. Right. I saw that headline, and when I saw you know Einhorn says conversation with Bernanke is frightening, my first reaction was, oh gee, Bernanke is finally telling the truth. <laughs> And the truth is frightening, so I went right to the article. But I found out the opposite was true. Einhorn said it was frightening because he wasn't telling the truth. Yeah. Or at least, put it differently, he, he hasn't changed his view. Because yeah. uh, Greenspan is a great case, because Greenspan, before he was Fed chairman, had nothing but good things to say about gold. Since he left the Fed, he's had nothing but good things to say about gold. Yeah. The entire time from 87 to 2007, when he was chairman, he, had, he, he said no good things about gold. So the point is, it's, it's almost like, yeah, I thought maybe Bernanke had a change of heart, but he didn't. He's sticking to the, the Kool-Aid. So uh, uh, that's what was frightening. And, oh, my I agree God. I think, that, I mean, the whole thing is just flat out you know, crazy. But yeah. what do you think, is there any difference with Yellen ideologically? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. When Yellen came in, a lot of people said, oh, she's just like Bernanke. I said, no, she is much worse. <laughs> Bernanke, for all his uh, analytical shortcomings, had a practical streak. There was a practical side yeah. to Bernanke. And that's why you had the stop-go policy. You know, everyone gets spun up about the taper in December. And I point out, well, no, that was, we've tapered twice before. When QE1 ended, it was 100% yeah, taper. Good point. When QE2 ended, it was 100% taper. The data is that tapering fails. Mm-hmm. And I expect QE3, the, the QE3 taper will fail also. They've tapered right into weakness. That's a mm-hmm. separate story. We're lucky if we avoid a recession this year. Um, so, but, he, but he did have this kind of stop-go thing, you know, where he ended it and started it. And, you know, but she is very hard-shell, very model-driven, mm-hmm. very detached from reality in the real yep. world. Now, I think she's dealing in good faith. I mean, her heart is really into the dual mandate. Yeah. She. Price stability is not even close to being an issue. In fact, we have the opposite problem. We may be, certainly in a disinflationary stage, we may be tipping into a deflationary stage. Inflation is nowhere to be seen. Um, and so she's not worried about, she, she is worried about the employment situation. The unemployment rate is, is meaningless. Good example, Goodhart's law. You know, Charles Goodhart uh, uh, said uh, you know, some decades ago, he, he developed what's called Goodhart's law. He said, the minute a metric becomes the object of policy, 
it loses its content as a metric yeah. because you yeah. almost manipulate two. It's kind of like China's GDP of 7.5%. It's meaningless because <laughs> they're going to target it and make it even if they have to do... But none, none of this has anything to do with whether these are good or bad people or her heart is in the right place or she's smart or not. Look, I, I mean, the people that you know, the, of the Roman Catholic Church who said that there was no solar system in, this, in the 16th century, I'm sure they were very well intended too. But right. we, we have a point here where at least I see her, the difference between her and Bernanke to me is quite simple. Right. She is nowhere near the charlatan. She cannot keep the same straight face when stuff starts to get real on her and I think she'll start to look unconfident in the policy. I think that's a very good point. We saw it in her first press conference, not the one, not the most recent one, but the one in March. No, her first, her first kind of show. Right, where she yeah. came out with a six-week thing. Oh, my God. I, I think she was actually being honest. Now, you never that's see, the problem. But, well, that's the thing. You know, she's, you know, she's from Brooklyn, <laughs> so she's got... Look, these people, I, I know, I, I don't know Janet Yellen personally, but I've, I've worked with many central bankers, Nobelists, PhDs in economics, the guy in the office next door type of thing. I'm very immersed in this whole culture. They have very high IQs. They're brilliant. They're great academics. I think they're dealing in good faith. I don't think they're out to destroy America, even though they're pretty far down that path. Um, but they've got the wrong models. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, they're miseducated, and they are destroying America. They just don't realize it. So now, Janet Yellen has the added quality of being from Brooklyn, so I think she is very honest. And she's just going to say crazy things every now and then. They, they come from the heart, but they're going to scare the market. Well, these personal attributes actually do matter, and we're not making it personal. We're just observing the personal attributes. Correct. I mean, if you study kinesics, for example, the, right. the art of lying or the study of you know, people being uncomfortable under certain pressure points, mm-hmm. you know, she rings the register on some huge signals right. when she starts to get outside of her box. I think that's right. I mean, here's somebody who, from what I can understand, she won't actually talk to you unless it's in, within her prepared box of comments. Well, I don't think she's ever worked anywhere other than academia and central banking. I well, mean, isn't I, that fantastic? Yeah. Uh, okay, great. And, uh, but you, you know, another uh, point, Keith, I think you're kind of getting at this, is that why are the smartest people in the world racking their brains to figure out what she thinks? That's a very bad system when, <laughs> when the manipulation is so great and the power is so centralized. Oh, it's so true. This is really this is what physicists call a single point of failure. Engineers call a single point of failure. You build an elaborate system, yeah. but it all comes down to one point. Now, I think we, sh- we have to do that because we're playing defense at, at certain is, times. We're trying to understand markets, but that's a lousy system. It's absolutely what's We have what's to happening. read her mind. Yeah. If you go to Wall Street today, the highest premium meeting that you will pay for is that dinner that David Einhorn had with Bernanke. That access point, that opportunity to get that data point. And it's all strung up on that. To to convince yourself otherwise is crazy. Well, I had had a private, small, eight people around a table dinner recently with two central bankers, and one from the Monetary Policy Committee, the Bank of England, one from the FOMC. And uh, we had what what are called Chatham House rules. So I can describe what was said, but not mention the name. Of course. I I won't mention the name. Um, But, uh, and and it costs a lot less than $200,000. But uh, I, so I said to this FOMC member, I said, you know, because I was sitting as close as I am to you, and I said, you know, the Fed's insolvent on a mark-to-market basis. I like to keep the conversation interesting. (laughs) Uh, And the individual said, no, we're not. And uh, she said, no one's done that, that calculation. I said, actually, I've done it, and I think other analysts have done it. It's pretty apparent. Uh, and the individual said, I uh, kind of harumphed and said, well, uh, uh, maybe. And then I just stared the person down because she knew that I knew what I was talking about. And the person said, well, uh, we are insolvent, but it doesn't matter. Central banks don't need capital. Mm-hmm. So, that, so the person went from no to maybe to yes in about 30 seconds. Yeah. But there's an FOMC member based- saying, yeah, we're insolvent. And then, and then they you know, said, it doesn't matter. And I said, you know what? Uh, Rand Paul is in all likelihood running for president in 2016. 
He's already publicly put a stake in the ground around Fed insolvency. If you think bank bailouts were unpopular, where do we have to bail out the Fed? So I'm sorry, uh, you know, central banker. This is this political issue is coming down the road, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it's, this is the biggest issue I have with it. It's based on non-truths. Right. And when they're talking to somebody who is absolutely ignorant that they can't talk down to, right? They will recoil. Yes. And or, and or they won't have it. This is basically the point with Bernanke. In response to Einhorn, he said, "You're wrong." Yeah. Yeah. And God told me this too. I mean, okay, I got it. But. The reality is that that's how risky the system is because really these fulcrum points are getting thinner or narrower, I guess, is your point. Right. And you're really going to have some pin action when that, when that thing moves. Correct. And they either don't understand it or to the extent they do understand it, they certainly can't talk honestly about it because right. it'll, you know, it'll just trigger the collapse. Now, having said all that, I think most people will be shocked about this tweet that you had today. But you've said this on an ongoing basis, and I think it's you know, just a testament to how well you kind of understand the game within the game here. Draghi. Mm-hmm. You said Draghi shows once again that he is the only central banker who understands central banking. See right. Chapter 5 of Death of Money, which right. is, of course, you know, it's, it, explain that. How, how do we talk about Sure, that? and I do have a, an entire chapter in the Death of Money just on the euro and European Central Bank, et cetera. And you go back to, uh, to early 2012, you know, our friends, uh, Noriel Rubini, Paul Krugman, Joe Stiglitz are running around with their hair on fire saying the euro is falling <laughs> our apart. Our friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Greece has to be pushed out for the good of the system. Spain should quit, go back to the Peseta, devalue the currency, lower the unit labor costs. There'll be a northern tier, a southern tier. And I said three years ago, and you know, because we were in regular contact, this is nonsense. Nobody's getting kicked out. Nobody's quitting. They will be adding members, and the euro as a currency is strong and getting stronger. You nailed it. And, and, but there are very specific reasons for that. So what, yep. I do, what I do in the book is lay out you know, why? It, why? So I, I, you know, I kind of steer the reader in that direction. Um, but Draghi is a fascinating character. First of all, you know, he's, he's, he's better forward guidance than talk and no action, but he, he knows he can't, you know, kind of can't weaken the euro in this environment. But recently, Draghi gave a speech up at uh, Harvard. Uh, I, think, I think it was the Kennedy School, but one of the schools up at Harvard. And in response to the Q&A, and one of the people in the audience, uh, a, a friend of mine, he, I think Draghi thought he was maybe he was a student or something. This guy's actually a pretty sharp gold. See, at least Krugman, when we were on Yale campus, our office was in the Taft Mansion on Yale, on Yale campus, and Darius Dale kind of always makes fun of this, but uh, Krugman wouldn't let us ask questions or even in the meetings. Right. So he's not as sharp about controlling the narrative as, you know, so the question to Draghi is, uh, <laughs> he's in Harvard and so determined, you know, uh, uh, you know, what do you think about gold? What's your opinion of gold? And it's a very simple question. Draghi gave a fascinating answer, and I put this in cha- really? chapter nine of my book. He said, well, you know, before I was head of the ECB, I was head of the Central Bank of Italy. Yep. And I never sold any gold. I always thought that you should keep gold as a hedge against the devaluation of the dollar. Mm-hmm. So, and it's true. Italy has about 2,500 tons of gold, one of the largest gold hoards in the world. They've had it for decades. They didn't sell any. And... Um, so here's, here's a central banker, a modern money printer, saying, you know, I think gold has a place in your portfolio because the reserves of a country are just the country's portfolio as a hedge against inflation in the dollar. <laughs> and I agree with that completely. I've, I've always said, you know, I recommend investors allocate you know, 10, 20 percent if you want to be aggressive, 10 percent of your investable assets in gold. I've never said 50 all in. I don't believe that. Uh, but here's Draghi saying the same thing. So uh, he, he did have a kind word to say about gold publicly, and it is in the book. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of him getting, I mean, he gets gold, he gets money. Correct. Is what right. you're saying right. when you say he gets it. Right. Now, 
Why would a guy like that say that he wants to devalue his currency? He doesn't. He just, it's just, that's he needs just, to sit. He needs to sit. Look, um, uh, the, the thing is... He tr- needs to say it to have his job. Well, a couple, yeah, he does. Well, a couple of things about the European Central Bank. that There's a bunch of stuff Americans don't get. The reason Americans don't get it is because they, they read the FT and The Economist, and they think they're reading about Europe. <laughs> the thing is, England hates Europe. The FT and The Economist hate the euro. So Americans who get their information from London are not getting European information. You have to go to Germany, go to Spain, go to Italy, talk to people over there, read those publications to really understand what's going on. Most Americans are too lazy to do that. So anyway, get, getting back to Europe. First of all, Europe runs on what's called the civil law system, yep. which goes back to the Napoleonic Code and before that. I'm Canadian, I get it. Okay, you, yeah. you, you get it. And the Code of Justinian in, 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 uh, in late antiquity. America runs on a common law system, which we got from England. Now, in common law, there's a lot of wiggle room. You know, you have, you have statutes, but you, know, you have what, what's called equity, you know, fairness ideas. You can kind of, you got wiggle room and you can kind of do what you want. In a civil law system, everything has to be written down, it's by the book. And if you don't have a rule, write a new rule. That's their approach. Mm -hmm. So their mandate is a single mandate, price stability. And Draghi takes that seriously. They are guided by law. He does not feel the cultural or legal degrees of freedom that Bernanke and Yellen feel. He Mm -hmm. feels he's got to do his job. And the thing that, that people forget is, okay, there is deflation in the periphery. We know that. But he's got to maintain European price stability. Mm -hmm. So uh, that means actually more inflation in Germany. Because if you've got the deflation in the periphery and you want to maintain European price stability, you have to have inflation in Germany to offset the two. Mm. So that's that's the big development in the last couple of years, which is not that they're going to change monetary policy, but that Germany is going to allow more inflation. How do they do that? Well, they have very tight labor management relations, so you just give everybody a raise. That's how you inflate in Germany. <laughs> so, um, so that's now playing out. So, so he, look, he might care about growth. He might care about uh, competitiveness. He might care about unit labor costs. Uh, I'm sure he's well aware of all those things, but that's not his job. His job is price stability. Now that Germany is on board uh, with more inflation in Germany, he's getting what he wants without cheapening the euro. By the way, cheapening your currency does nothing for export competitiveness. That's a joke. These aren't export countries anymore anyway. Newsflash. Correct. Correct. You know, yeah. Germany, you know, what, 60% of the economy is consumption at this point. The U.S. Right. it's 70. This is why I still can't believe these cockamamie Keynesian economists talking about the dollar being down as a good thing when there's, A, no data to support it, even with the dollar at a post-Nixon you know, Nixon low. Right. Um, or, or otherwise. I mean, what you start to see now, and, and Ed, this is maybe, uh, maybe one of the last topics to kind of hit on. Yellen was asked about inequality. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, it's terrible. I mean, I'm sure she feels terrible about it. Sure. But how do, you, how do you reconcile devaluing the currency of the people, taking up cost of living to all-time highs, in dollar terms? Right and say that you are not affecting inequality? Do you get that at all? I still can't get this. No, that, that is disingenuous because, you know, the, this is kind of the topic of my first book, Currency Wars. When you cheapen the currency, remember, the U.S. is a net importer. So when you cheapen the currency, okay, maybe Boeing sells a couple more aircraft, but what you're doing is increasing the cost of everything we buy, electronics, textiles, you know, manufactured goods from abroad, natural resources, et cetera. All that goes up. And, they, and you're they extending want the, that. that is the object of policy, to get that inflation into the supply such, chain. And you're extending the, uh, yeah. the shelf life of the Samuelson textbook that I had at Yale, which that, is that, just, this is where you learn these, 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 these relationships. Right. It's just, they're, they're not even modern relationships. And by the way, when I say these things, these are not just kind of you know, intuitive um, guesses. There's, there's, there's um, documentation behind all this. Specifically, Lars Svensson, 
who was a colleague of um, Bernanke, and for that matter, Krugman, and, and Blinder, and the rest of them at the Princeton Economics Department. These guys are beauties. Princeton Economics Department should be quarantined. I mean, let them do what they want. <laughs> let them do what they want in a hot zone, but don't let these ideas yeah. out, because they infect the, the, the rest of us. But uh, Lars Svensson today is the deputy governor of the Central Bank of Sweden, but a form, more, more to the point, economics colleague of Bernanke at Princeton. And he wrote a paper in 2002 called The Foolproof Way. And what he said, this is 2002, right, so 12 years ago, he said, when you're at the zero bound, you can still ease monetary policy by cheapening your currency. And the point is to import inflation. Mm -hmm. This isn't to help exports. This is to import inflation. Exactly. That's what they're doing. And that robs everyday Americans. You know, as does zero interest rate policy. Zero interest rate policy is a $400 billion wealth transfer from savers to hedge funds, banks, and, exactly. and plutocrats. I mean, we showed this in our most recent slide deck. I, I showed the median consumer in America. So again, we're looking at the quintiles. The top quintile definitely gets paid by QE. 66% of what we get paid. If you're, if you're smart enough to front run this policy to inflate, you buy inflation, you buy more inflation, you right. buy bonds, right. you buy tips, you buy anything that's locked yeah. down that right. is going to go up in terms right. of that part of the trade. Right. The 80% of the country is screwed. That's absolutely right. screwed. The median income in this country is $48,000. They don't really pay income taxes, but to spend just to coexist, they, they spend $43,000, right. This This effect, this robs you know, the teachers, the firemen, the, right. the police, the civil servants, uh, you know, small business people. These are the ones being robbed. They're robbed first because they get no return on their savings and will be robbed again when the inflation kicks in. Yeah, and then in, 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 on an ongoing basis, they're being told that housing, we're doing it for housing. Right. Meanwhile, 30% of the country rents. So right. when the prices of homes go up, rent goes up. Yeah. And it's a third of what people actually have as their cost. And a lot of the rentals are owned by people like BlackRock, and a lot of the yep. benefits of zero interest rates go to Jamie Dimon. So you know, Larry Fink and Jamie Dimon get richer. Everyday Americans are screwed. There's your income inequality, and Janet Yellen is masterminding that. Now, do you think, uh, maybe this is a good one to wrap up on, do you think the rest of the world gets it, or our own world here in the U.S. gets it, or both? It's a great question, Keith. What I find, and I, you know, I, I talk and meet people on, on five continents, um, you know, if you have a health problem, you don't think that you have to go to medical school. You call your doctor. <laughs> exactly. If you have a legal problem, you don't go to law school. You call your lawyer. But people have economic problems and portfolio problems. They don't trust Wall Street, and with good reason. Uh, they don't trust their financial analysts. There are some great ones out there, but there are a lot of people who are either, uh, you know, there are a few Jordan Belfords left, uh, and then a lot of them are just using the wrong models. So, so people are kind of self-medicating when it comes to their portfolios. They feel that they've got to go learn economics. So this is kind of sinking in. It's part of the success of my books is that, uh, I mean, the content is high level, but the language is, is plain English. Yeah. Plain English and metaphor. I, I've no, I could care less if a PhD bought my book. hope they do, but uh, this is really written for everyday Americans. So I think the message is getting out there. People know something's wrong. And I like to say when it comes to your own money, everybody has a PhD. So people are kind of finding the way to this. Yeah, they, people know their own money. Correct. When it hits them in the wallet, they know. Yep. And when somebody's lying to them, I'm pretty sure they know too. That's right. So thank you. Thanks, Keith. I, I appreciate it. Uh, that's Jim Records. You have to read his books, both of them. I'm not through the second one yet, but I need to get on that now. I'm at Keith McCullough. Uh, this was a real conversation with Jim Records. Thank you for listening to this edition of Hedge Eye's Real Conversations. If you enjoyed this interview, we encourage you to subscribe to HedgeEye Podcasts for automatic downloads of future interviews with top market and economic thought leaders. You can also visit HedgeEye.com for additional content. There you can learn more about our financial research firm's comprehensive market research products and complimentary videos and analysis.
The proceeding has been presented for informational purposes only, and none of the information contained herein constitutes a solicitation, offer, opinion, or recommendation by Hedgei or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guest speakers to buy or sell any security or to provide legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice regarding the profitability or suitability of any security or investment. Opinions and analysis are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can and may go up or down based on any number of factors. Consult your financial professional before investing.